Consciousness is the number one problem of science. It's undeniable that some organisms are subjects of experience, but the question of how it is that these systems are subjects of experience is perplexing. It's the one thing that cannot really be an illusion, is the fact that we are conscious now, right here and right now. But how this happens, how the material stuff, the warm and wet neurons and glia and all the things that are inside your skull, how that generates this inner universe of conscious experience is still thought of as one of these completely intractable mysteries. I think we should feel very sober and a little afraid at the power of human credulity, the capacity of human minds to be gripped by theory, by faith, for this particular denial is the strangest thing that has ever happened in the whole history of human thought, not just the whole history of philosophy. If you have or feel you have consciousness and experience, then you have it. So could consciousness be, in fact be reduced to anything else at all? It's a kind of intuition, but it's one we ought to examine. For most of us, we, we take that world as objective, that we assume that what we're seeing is pretty close to what's really there. and we typically take a reductionist point of view. We assume that as you go to smaller and smaller scales of space-time, you find more and more fundamental objects, particles, for example, and with those kinds of objects, we can build up even bigger objects like brains. So we have this idea of a hierarchy of objects in space and time from the very microphysical particles all the way up to macroscopic objects like brains and, and even stars and galaxies. Why is it that when our cognitive systems engage in visual and auditory information processing, we have visual or auditory experience? The quality of deep blue, the sensation of middle sea. How can we explain why there is something it is like to entertain a mental image or experience an emotion? It's widely agreed that experience arises from a physical basis, but with no good explanation of how and why it so arises. And this is a very old worry about the relationship between mind and matter or consciousness and matter. It's the difference between the, the inner world and the outer world, between the subjective and the objective, between the mind and the brain. And once you've split the world and the universe in two like this, into two fundamentally different modes of existence, it's very difficult to know how to put them back together again. But there have been a number of attempts to understand how we could relate in a scientific way our conscious experiences to the physical world of space and time and particles. What's remarkable is that brilliant scientists have been working on this problem for decades. And there is, to date, not a single specific conscious experience that can be explained, not one. So philosophers think often that perhaps they can explain consciousness as something that emerges from matter. And they point to the idea that the wetness of water emerges from H2O molecules. I say no feature of matter as conventionally conceived because I think we need to reconceive matter. Now, paradoxically, matter is itself an abstraction which no one has ever seen. We've only seen elements of the world to which we attribute the quality within our consciousness of being material. It both substitutes an idea for an experience, which is a kind of event, and in doing so produces something static in physics, if you want to measure uh, something smaller and smaller, like say measure a property of an electron, and it's very, very small. Well, to resolve a smaller and smaller object, to intuitively to see it, you're going to need to use 
say, light or some kind of radiation, if the wavelength is too coarse, then you can't resolve the thing that you're looking at. So that's fine. We can make light, for example, with smaller and smaller wavelengths. And in principle, we can do this as fine as we want. Quantum theory tells us that as we increase the frequency of the light, the energy of the light gets bigger and gets higher and higher. Einstein's theory of relativity and, and gravity tell us that energy and mass are the same thing. They're convertible. And the more mass you put in there, the more that curves. And at some point, if you raise the energy high enough, you get enough mass that you create a black hole and you literally destroy the object you're trying to measure. So space-time we thought was fundamental, but space-time is doomed. So we have to make a creative leap. We have to go beyond space-time and posit a brand new theory. The hard problem is hard, precisely because it's not a problem about the performance of functions. The problem persists even when the performance of all the relevant functions is explained. What makes the hard problem hard and almost unique is that it goes beyond problems about the performance of functions. I want to cite another philosopher, Frank Jackson, um, who articulated what has come to be known as the knowledge argument, um, which concerns a visual neuroscientist named Mary. Mary, who is an outstanding visual neuroscientist who knows everything there is to know about the functional mechanisms of visual information processing. But Mary is blind. She has never experienced vision. She knows all about the physics of light waves impinging on the photosensitive rods and cones of the retina and how those light waves are transduced into nerve impulses and how they're propagated uh, along the optic nerve via the lateral geniculate body to the visual cortex, where all of that uh, incredible information processing goes on. And yet, uh, as I said, despite her knowing all of this, about of visual information processing, she has never experienced what it is like to see. And then one day, thanks be to God, the gift of sight is bestowed upon her. And for the first time in her life, Mary experiences what it's like to see things like red and blue, the, the actual qualities of visual experience. And Jackson's point is that at this moment, Mary will learn something utterly new about vision something which was not accounted for by her mechanistic knowledge. Everything she knew about the physics and physiology and information processing mechanics of vision did not require her to understand anything about what visual experience is like. And the alarming consequence that many people come to is that therefore experience, the actual stuff of consciousness, the subjective qualia of visual, of, of what it is like to see. Things like this somehow exist outside of our natural scientific account, our mechanistic account, our causal account of the functions of, of the brain, which implies that consciousness exists in some sort of parallel universe and that it cannot be accounted for in terms of the ordinary laws of physical science. If you assume life to be this one big scary mystery, then you'll be tempted to look for one large humdinger of a solution, some very dramatic explanation. And that's not really the case for life. Now we think about life, it's comprised many different features that not all living systems share. I mean, most things share, we have metabolism, we have reproduction, we have homeostasis of the body. And these are all properties of living systems and they can all individually be explained by things happening inside organisms. Collectively, they explain the difference between 
things that are alive and things that are not. So perhaps the same strategy can work for consciousness. That consciousness is not just one thing, and if we stop treating it as one big scary mystery in search of one large dramatic solution, then we might make more progress than we think. I would say that matter appears to me an element within consciousness that provides the necessary resistance for creation and with it inevitably for individuality to arise. Part of what you're experiencing is the experiencing of being you, of being a self within the world around you. So how do we explain the specific experience of being a person? This is, gets to the heart of what really we want to understand and what is it like, what does it mean to be a self, to be an individual? All individual beings, including ourselves, bring forms into being and cause them to persist. Now, it doesn't cut much ice with me if you say, but they don't look alike or behave similarly. I'm agreed in that, but then water and ice don't look like one another. One of them is flowing and transparent. The other one is opaque and so hard it can split your head open. And water can also take the form of something that's entirely invisible in space around us. So water has phases. I don't mean temporal phases. I mean the phases that chemists speak of. And why shouldn't consciousness have phases? Maybe matter is a particular phase of consciousness whereby it becomes more measurable and extensible and takes on a form which causes whatever it's in to persist. So we have to give up a conception of matter that excludes consciousness and a conception of consciousness that precludes matter. I asked my professors when I was a student, when they taught us about all this information processing that goes on in the cortex, I asked them, but where is the sentient subject? Where is the being of the mind that experiences all this information processing? And I told you those days, well, I was just advised not to ask questions like that, that they were bad for your career. But as the century proceeded, uh, uh, by the 1990s, there was an answer standard answer was it all comes together in the prefrontal lobes so what happens when your prefrontal lobes are removed entirely uh, this is my patient w i won't go into all the medical details but basically he sustained a brain hemorrhage subarachnoid hemorrhage in his frontal lobes which required surgery which didn't go well required further surgery which didn't go well which led to infections uh, which were chronic, and in the end, he was left with no prefrontal lobes whatsoever. This is rare. I explained to patient W that, according to my colleagues, that he should have no conscious, subjective sense of self. Uh, and asked him, does he have a sense of self? And he said, yes, of course he does. So I, I asked him to indulge me so that uh, I could demonstrate this to my colleagues. I said, are you consciously aware of your thoughts? He says, yes, of course I am. I told him, I wanted him to picture something in his mind's eye, uh, in, in this way, making use of this uh, conscious selfhood of his. I wanted him as a self to observe some information processing going on in his mind. I asked him to imagine two dogs and one chicken. Then I said, do you see them in your mind's eye? And he said, yes. I said, now tell me, how many legs do you see in total? You can see the point. This would demonstrate he's able to see these two dogs and one chicken if he's able to count the legs, and he answered eight. I was crestfallen. I said eight, and he retorted, yes, the dogs ate the chicken. It's perhaps not the best joke in the world, but I hope you'll agree with me that there's somebody home in the case of patient W. 
able to not only see uh, uh, with his mind's eye and comment on doing so, but even to crack jokes about it. So what does make the difference? What, what is it in the brain that gives an indication of how conscious we are? Is it the number of neurons that are sort of involved in whatever the brain is doing? No. Beautiful example of that is just by considering the cerebellum. The cerebellum is a, it's often called the little brain, the mini brain hanging off the back of your cortex here. The cerebellum contains about three quarters of all the neurons in your brain. I said earlier you've got about 80 billion neurons in your brain. The majority, three quarters of them, are in the cerebellum. Only one quarter is in the rest of the brain in the cortex. Now, if you have damage to your cerebellum or are born without one, as, as happens in some rare cases, you will have various problems. You'll have problems of coordination of your body, also of your thought, but you will not lose consciousness. You can do without a cerebellum and you will be conscious. So it's not just some gross property of number of neurons. Is it any particular region? Well, this is a trickier question. There are certainly parts of the brain that if they are damaged, then you will lose consciousness irreversibly and forever. Uh, but it's in most cases where such regions have been identified, it's almost as if they're acting as like on-off switches. If you want to watch television, uh, you have to plug it in. That doesn't mean that the power source uh, at the wall socket is where television itself uh, is actually produced. It's just a necessary prerequisite that the television set, in order to do its te televisual thing, uh, has to be powered up. That's what we thought the reticular activating system does. Uh, it is this necessary prerequisite. It activates the cortex. But we thought the cortex was where the contents and the qualities of consciousness are generated, just as the television set itself uh, actually uh, conveys the images and the sounds, the programming. We don't expect the programming to be altered by, if you interrupt the power supply, the whole thing switches off like a coma. Uh, but you can't change the content and the quality of the programming by manipulating the power supply. The brain, I'd like to suggest to you, is a manifestation of something as mass, whereas the mind is a manifestation as energy. There's nothing mere about matter. There's nothing merely physical about the physical. And it's constantly interacting with us. So do we make reality up? I would resist that conclusion for a whole host of reasons. But I, what I would say is the way in which we approach nature governs what we find. The how of our attention to the world changes what there is there for us to find. Every conscious experience that you have is different from every other conscious experience you've ever had or ever will have. It's enormously informative. Every single one is different. Even the experience of pure darkness is informative in this sense because it's different from every other experience you're having. That's technically what information means. It's how many alternatives are ruled out by something being the case. How do we explain what we're conscious of right here and right now, given that we are conscious? What we perceive visually is in some sense both less than and more than what's out there in the world. And this is very obvious if we take something as simple as color. So we know that there is this whole electromagnetic spectrum of light, and what we call the visible part of the spectrum is only a tiny slice, a thin slice of this reality. And everything we visu visually experience is built from this tiny slice of what's actually going on 
out there in the world. But it's not just a filtering down to that thin slice of reality. We generate colors from it. We're sensitive only to three specific wavelengths, but out of that, we generate all the colors that we could potentially perceive. Colors don't exist out there in the world. We've known that since Newton. Our brain makes colors from the universe. I think it's Cezanne who said, color is where the brain and the universe meet. The fact that we play a part in its being, what it is, doesn't make it unreal. We help midwife into being something in the cosmos. We neither make reality up, nor is it simply out there for us to discover. We bring about a communion between our minds and the world. However, I think we should still discriminate between matter and consciousness. It would be a shame to give up this rather important intuitive distinction. And if they're different, in what respect? Lesion evidence, deep brain stimulation evidence, and psychopharmacological evidence all converge on the conclusion that feelings are actually generated in the brainstem, that affective feeling states are generated not in the cortex, but the brainstem. It's a necessary prerequisite for all other forms of consciousness because it activates the cortex. That's how the cortex, which otherwise does all its information processing unconsciously, becomes conscious by being modulated by these arousal states coming from the reticular activating system is emotional and affective feeling. Now, I know this is a controversial statement. I'm quoting it because even Freud, the first person to point out that all of this cognition that has been the focus of our attempts to solve the hard problem of consciousness, all of this stuff, this information processing contributed by the cortex, unlike cognition, which can go on unconsciously, feelings cannot go on unconsciously. As some people say you can have unconscious emotions, you can have unconscious affects, but surely nobody could say you could have an unconscious feeling. I mean, how can you have a feeling that you don't feel? It wouldn't be a feeling if you didn't feel it. And perception on this view has to be a process of inference, a process of best guessing in which the brain combines this ambiguous sensory input with prior expectations or knowledge about the way the world is to form its best guess of what's out there. And that is what we consciously perceive. The eyes aren't a transparent window onto an externally existing mind-independent reality. What we perceive is the brain's best guess of the causes of the sensory signals that it encounters. So how do we make sense of all this in the, in the brain? Instead of perception depending on sensory signals coming into the brain from the bottom up or the outside in, what we perceive depends as much if not more, if not entirely, on predictions, perceptual predictions flowing in the opposite direction from the top down or the inside out. So we don't passively perceive our worlds, we actively generate them all the time. We know that our best scientific theories tell us you can't do that because space-time is not fundamental. So let's go the other way. Let's get a theory of consciousness not strapped to the laws of physics. Instead, what we want is to be have a deeper theory of consciousness completely transcending space and time, that completely beyond the laws of physics. And this deeper theory then must give rise to space and time. It has to actually show how space time arises and how the laws of physics arise as a special projection of a much richer theory. So the idea will be that, that the dynamics of consciousness could be extremely rich, much richer than the structure of space time and the laws of quantum field theory and so forth inside space time. The brain's predictions about what's going on indeed flow in this top-down direction from the inside out, 
and then sensory signals coming in the outside in, bottom up direction, what we are used to thinking of as the input, maybe conveying the information about the world, actually these signals just convey errors. They convey the difference between what the brain expects and what it gets at every level of processing within the brain. Perception in this case becomes a process of the brain continually updating its predictions to try and minimize prediction error. So ideally, we perceive most accurately when there's no sensory input coming in at all because we've perfectly predicted it. Let's take respiratory control. It's normally automatic. It functions unconsciously. You're not aware of your need to breathe. You just do so reflexively, but that's because it's also predictable. Now you move into an emergency situation. Imagine you're in a burning building and you're in a carbon dioxide filled room. You've never been in a burning building before, let alone this particular one, you have no idea what to do. There is no available prediction. You have to feel your way through the problem. Shall I go up? Shall I go down? Try going up. If you go up, what you find is that the carbon dioxide levels increase, the oxygen levels decrease. And the way you know that is it feels worse. The suffocation alarm, the air hunger increases. And so the feeling tells you that you're going the wrong way. You now change your mind and you go downstairs instead and the opposite happens. Now the feeling of relief as you experience the oxygenation increasing tells you this is the right way to go. This really changes, I, I want to emphasize it. For me, it was a sort of very radical reframing. It's so natural for us to think of sensory signals coming in as conveying information about what's there. In some sense, that's still true. There's still information about it. But we don't read that information out to form our perceptions. It's, these signals are used to calibrate and update the predictions, and it's the predictions that are the basis of what we perceive. This theory of how the brain does perception, you'll notice is not a theory about consciousness. It's a theory of explaining, of mapping between mechanisms and what we perceive. Why the visual world is organized into objects, for instance, whereas the sense of emotion isn't. Different kinds of predictions. And if all this is true, then you should consciously perceive more accurately and more quickly things you expect rather than things you don't expect. So you could say that instead of saying something like, I'll believe it when I see it, it's actually probably more accurate to say that I'll see it when I believe it. We know consciousness is creative and we know consciousness is surer than matter. Again, Max Planck, probably one of the two greatest physicists of the last hundred years, was famously asked whether he thought consciousness could be explained in terms of matter and its laws. No, he replied, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. And 13 years later and three years before he died, Planck went further. As a physicist, and therefore as a man who spent his whole life in the service of the most down-to-earth science, namely the exploration of matter, no one is going to take me for a starry-eyed dreamer. After all my exploration of the atom, then, let me tell you this, there is no matter as such. All matter arises and exists only by virtue of a force which sets the atomic particles oscillating and holds them together in that tiniest of solar systems, the atom. We must suppose behind this force a conscious, intelligent spirit. This spirit is the ultimate origin of matter. So for me, this is a really important clue that yes, it's this top-down element of perception that is really responsible for giving our everyday experience the texture and the phenomenology that it has. 
the way in which the organism experiences this is through feelings. Feelings convey the deepest value system of us living things, which is that it is good to survive and bad not to. So I'm very familiar with the psychotherapeutic um, world. So the obvious take-home message is feelings are what matters. That in order to understand uh, whether things are going badly or well for a patient, use feelings as your thermometer, as it were. A hunger feels different from thirst, feels different from sleepiness, feels different from a distended bladder. These are all affects, bodily affects, and each one of them feels different because the need behind them is a different need. You need to know what's going badly, what needs attention, uh, and what's going well. Now, the same applies to emotions. Uh, if we have emotional needs, fear is just the feeling that your need for safety is not being met. Rage is just an indication that your need to have frustrating impediments removed from your way is not being met. Separation, distress, panic, uh, and despair. Uh, you need loved ones and, and your caregivers in a close proximity. If they're not, that's an error signal. Things are going wrong. That leads me to the last thing I can say in an abbreviated answer to such a big question, which is that, remember, then we have predictions. I told you that the predictive model makes predictions as to what you must do to meet that need. So if a feeling, if a patient is suffering from a particular type of feeling, it means there's a particular emotional need that's not being met, which means that their predictions as to how to meet that need are not hitting the mark. And so the main task, if I may put it absolutely simplistically, that the main task of psychotherapy is to help our patients to find better predictions as to how to meet uh, the emotional needs which are not being met as indexed by the feelings that they suffer from. The placebo effect, one of the most obvious and well-attested and powerful effects on the body, is brought about simply by telling a phrase to a person or them seeing an action. Hypnosis can cure a skin condition which is photographable, visible, and contains organic changes in the body. CBT, something as simple as cognitive behavioral therapy, performed thousands of times a day in London, is testimony to the fact that getting people just to think a different thought changes their brain, changes the balance of the chemicals in their brain, and will relieve anxiety and depression. This applies to everything. For instance, the perception of time. Nobody knows what it is, why it flows as puzzling to physicists as it is to philosophers as it is to neuroscientists, but we experience time, we experience duration, we experience the moment of the now. How do we perceive time? Time is the, is the brain's best guess of the rate of change of perceptual information in the scene. When lots of things happen that are salient to us, we tend to experience the duration as, as being longer. People sometimes ask me, when did I write a book? Well, was it when the book was published? No. Was it when I finished writing the book? Well, no. Was it when I started writing the book? Well, not really. Was it when I started taking notes towards the book? Or when I had that conversation with a friend? Or whatever it was. We can't really say when or what exactly was the moment. But nonetheless, I wrote the book. And Mozart couldn't say where his ideas came from, they just came to him. But we wouldn't say that because of that, Mozart didn't write his Jupiter Symphony. Don't forget, when Michelangelo made one of his statues, he didn't put together arms and legs, he just cleared away stuff. An act of negation produced the masterpiece. This whole idea of conscious experience and perception being grounded in physiology and our nature as living organisms, I think means that 
consciousness probably has more to do with life than it does to do with intelligence. We tend to associate consciousness with intelligence, again, because of this pernicious anthropocentrism that we all have, that we're special and we think we're smart and we're conscious, so the two must go together. Which is why people in artificial intelligence, I think, always talk about when systems get sufficiently intelligent, at some point the lights are going to come on and they'll be conscious. Why do people make that assertion? It's totally unclear to me. Being intelligent allows you to be conscious in different ways. We, because we can do mental time travel, I can experience not only sadness and disappointment, but also regret and anticipatory regret. You have to be smart to experience these kinds of awful things. But it's just different ways of experiencing things. The raw mechanisms of consciousness have to do with being alive, not with being smart. So this has implications for things like AI. What would it take to build a conscious machine? Maybe you have to build a living machine first, or at least a machine that cares about its own persistence over time. This is rather like Shelley's famous saying that life is like a dome of many colored glass that stains the white radiance of eternity. And that is what we experience. And this idea of resistance or filtering is an interesting one. The brain becomes more powerful as it grows by shedding neurons and by pruning connections of the existing neurons. And a primary function of the corpus callosum is to inhibit traffic. Probably the single most important function of the frontal lobes is to inhibit. And for me, what this suggests is that a kind of restrictive process or resistance gives rise to something very creative. If perception is a matter of construction, we all have different conscious experiences. We all have our own individual personalized inner universes because we will all have different, to some degree, prior expectations about what's going on. If we really perceive things as being real, it makes it harder to understand that other people can have different experiences. And if you can't recognize the potential that other people can see things differently, then it's harder to, to talk. And I think that then feeds back to how we experience ourselves. It's just one, one tiny region in a vast space of possible minds. Have we solved consciousness? There's no kind of magic ingredient that I've given you that solves the hard problem at all. I prefer to admit that conscious experiences exist, and what we've been doing is a focus on explaining and predicting and controlling the properties of subjective experience. Of course, it doesn't answer the unanswerable question why there is something rather than nothing. Of course, this is to make assumptions, but it's impossible not to make assumptions. The standard materialist position makes assumptions of its own, e.g. that all is entirely random and meaningless, that nothing exists apart from matter, or that if consciousness exists, it comes about secondarily at some point in evolution out of something fundamentally alien to consciousness, that the order and beauty and apparently purposive drive in things cannot be explained, as neither can our capacity to appreciate and understand them, and that these are all remarkable coincidences. On either my outline or this one, order still emerges out of chaos and things naturally complexify without outside intervention. The difference is that in the materialist paradigm, all that is inexplicable. So is the fine tuning of the cosmos. Attempts to explain it result in the extravagant postulate that there is an infinite number of universes so that eventually one like this is bound to come about by chance. And as a social institution, science is not dogmatic. As we seek, science can think that for hundreds of years that space and time or space-time is fundamental and then wake up and say, oh wow, space-time is doomed. 
That's anti-dogmatism right there. Centuries of dogma have, are being overturned as we speak. Giving up space time is, is a real painful one for the scientists, but they're having to give it up. We will have to give up our, our pet ideas in many cases or find that are, that are new ideas that are far more deep and insightful than the ones that we thought were the final word.